Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from John 16, 1 through 7. And this is found on page 902 in your pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take that one home as a gift from us. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you now, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you, John. Well, good morning again. Welcome to Christ Community. We're really glad that you are here with us today. My name is Bill Gorman, if I haven't met you, and especially if you're newer here with us, I hope you felt warmly welcomed uh, here this morning. I know it's not always an easy thing to uh, show up at any church for the first time. So if that's you today, we're really glad uh, that you are here with us. And as we prepare now to look more closely at this passage of Scripture that John read for us, I'd love to pause and pray and ask for the Spirit's help in that. So let's do that together. Let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, convict us of our sin. Guide us to walk in your ways. Speak to us the truth of your word. Declare to us the beauty of the gospel. And glorify Christ as we open your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jesus begins this passage basically by saying, It is better that I go away. It is better that I go away. Now, that is not a verse that I've seen on a lot of Christian t-shirts or coffee mugs along the way. Uh, Just that statement from Jesus. It's better that I go away. Jesus. Uh, And again, you know, when we think about that, a quick show of hands. Who's ever said, like, it's so great that Jesus left. I'm so glad he did that. I wish, I'm so glad he didn't stay around bodily, that I could go meet him and sit down in front of him. I'm so glad that he left. I mean, no one, right? We're, we're more like uh, Lex from uh, Jurassic Park. You remember the original Jurassic Park movie when she's in the vehicle and the guy leaves? And he's like, he left us. He left us. Uh, that's, I think, more how we tend to think about Jesus leaving us. Not that it's better that he went away, but that he left us. And, and Jesus is saying, but no, seriously, this is for you. It's better for you that I'm going away. And it, it almost feels a little bit like Jesus is trying to do one of those Jedi mind trick things like, I'm not the person of the Trinity you're looking for. You know, this is uh, where you're no longer the one that you're looking for. There's somebody else coming. But seriously, Jesus says, it is better that he left. It's literally says, to your advantage that I am going away. He is actually responding to them, comforting them in their sorrow in this moment, saying, this is, this is the better thing for you. And when you hear Jesus saying, you know, I know you're hurting right now, but it's better that I leave, it also almost seems like a bad breakup where the person's like, you know what, it's, it's better. you're going to be better off without me. I'm, I'm holding you back. You know, <laughs> please, you know, it's really going to be better that I go away. And, but nothing can be further from the truth. This isn't a bad breakup. Jesus isn't saying, you know, you're better off without me. I'm holding your back in your life. You no, know, this is to your advantage, he says, 
But we've got some work to do to make this make sense because even throughout a lot of the Old Testament, or rather the New Testament, after Jesus is gone, the regular cry of the church is, come Lord Jesus, come back. We're longing for you to return. So how is it better that Jesus has left? How is it actually better that Jesus left? That's the question we want to ask together this morning. How is it better for you For me, for the world, how is it better for the atheist who's demanding proof of God's existence? How is it better for the skeptic who just is trying to figure out who Jesus is and if he's really who he claims he is? How is it better for the church that is being persecuted in places like Iran or China? How is it better that Jesus left? Because that's what he says. That's the implication of what he's saying. It's actually better for you, for the world, for atheists, for skeptics, for everyone else, even the persecuted church that I left. And and the answer to this question is key to unlocking what God is doing in the world now and how we can join him in that. So if you haven't already, I'd encourage you to turn to John chapter 16. You can grab one of the pew Bibles, or even if you just Google John chapter 16, John 16, um, you'll find any number of websites that can pull that up. I'd, I'd love for you to look along with me as we walk through this passage. In this section of John, which we've been in really since the beginning of January, uh, Jesus has been giving his kind of final speech, his final words to his closest followers. Sometimes this is called the farewell discourse or the upper room discourse, but it's this extended teaching from Jesus, five chapters, over 150 verses of Jesus' final teaching to his disciples, his closest friends on earth this final night before he would be arrested and crucified. This is conversation. It's, it's a tender conversation. It's heartbreaking at some points, but it's also a conversation of courage and love and obedience. And then Jesus gets to this point where he's reminding them that he's leaving, and it's hard, and that they are going to fail, that they are going to abandon him, uh, and, and really that later on, um, he even says here, there's going to come a time when people are going to kill you, and they're going to think that by killing you, they are giving service to God. So actually, just to pause here real quick, we can be confident because of that, that one reason Jesus is leaving um, isn't, the, the reason isn't that he's going to make life easier for us. He's not saying, I'm going to go away and send the Spirit to you so that your life will be easier. Um, He's actually saying, in some ways, it's going to get harder. But again, he's reminding, we talked a lot about this last week, that we are not victims in that. That when people oppose us because we are aligned with Jesus, because we're given our allegiance and our faith and our hope to him, that that's part of our apprenticeship, our following of a suffering servant king. We're not victims. Now, if you've been with us for a number of weeks, though, as we've been walking through this part of the Gospel of John, maybe something stuck out to you as the Scripture was being read, and it's the moment in verse 5 when Jesus says this. He says, but now I am going to him who sent me, and then he says, and none of you asks me, where are you going? Now, you may be scratching your head thinking, ah, it's been a few weeks, but didn't, didn't the disciples ask him where he was going back at John 14? And didn't someone else ask him where he was going one of the, the other one of the disciples back in John 13. So how is it that Jesus is saying here, no one's asking where I'm going? Because clearly in two places earlier in this very conversation, they've asked him, Jesus, where are you going? Why can't we come with you? Why? And so, you know, followers of Jesus for a long time have noticed this. We're not the first ones, like 2,000 years after Jesus spoke these words, like, huh. Um, there have 
So Jesus' followers for the last 2,000 years have understood Jesus' statement here in a couple of different ways. I think the best way to understand it, though, if you read, you know, how scholars and Christians and Bible readers have thought about this, is that, yes, they've asked, they have literally asked the question, Jesus, where are you going? But they have not really asked it in the sense of wanting to actually know the answer. They've asked the question as an expression of their sorrow or their sadness, but they're not really curious about where he's actually going. They're just like, Jesus, where are you going? I, I'm also, for example, I almost thought about it like this. You know, sometimes as, as a pastor, you know, I might get a, a call in the, the middle of the day, uh, even on, you know, day at home with the family, where it's like, oh, someone's in the hospital. I got to go um, help them, visit them, see them. And they, my kids in that moment could see me like, oh, like, dad, oh, like, where are you going? And they're not really so much curious about like, well, who's in the hospital? And what's going on? They're just sad that I'm leaving. And, and I think this is kind of what's happening is that the disciples, they've been expressing sorrow, sadness, but they haven't really been curious to understand where Jesus is going. I, th- I think that's what's happening here. So why is it better that Jesus left? Well, in short, because when this Jesus goes, he will send the helper, the spirit of truth, the, the, the Holy Spirit to them to be with them and in them. And this is not the first time that Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit in this conversation. We talked about that earlier where Jesus has given this promise. The Spirit has been with you, but he is now, there's coming this day where he's actually going to be in you. And Jesus shows us three reasons here why it is better that he goes and the Spirit comes. And first Jesus says it's better that he leaves because our helper, the Holy Spirit, convicts the world. That's the first reason. Jesus says it's better that I go because the Spirit is going to come and convict the world. This is verse 8. And when He, the Helper, the Holy Spirit comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, in English, we use that word convict or conviction in a couple of different ways. Sometimes we talk about someone has really strong convictions, like, man, she has really strong political convictions, or whatever it might be, kind of a strongly held opinion or belief. That's one way we can talk about conviction. Uh, the other way we tend to talk about it is in the context of a courtroom, right? Like the, the jury convicted the defendant on all charges, sort of like giving of a verdict, of, of convincing of the rightness of something. And that's, that's the sense that Jesus is using this language here in John chapter 16, more of this courtroom idea that the Spirit is the one who's bringing the right verdict about the world to bear. But more than just declaring that, and this is why this is actually good news, is the Spirit is also at work convincing people about their need, about all of our need for Jesus. The Spirit will, yes, declare the right verdict, but more than that, He will convince people, people like you and me who once did not believe the rightness of the verdict, that indeed our sin is the biggest problem that we face, and that Jesus is our only hope in that. Like, none of us naturally wants to believe that. None of us is naturally inclined to believe that. It it takes the work of the Spirit to convince us that, yes, indeed, our greatest problem is sin, and Jesus is our only hope. And again, that, we talked about this a lot last week, if you were here, this idea that when Jesus speaks about the world in the Gospel of John, he specifically means people who are opposed to him and the kingdom of God. And friends, that is every single one of us before the Spirit does that convicting work in our lives. Every single one of us at some point in our life, was in that place 
Uh, we are opposed to it. We don't want anything to do with Jesus. We're not really that interested in His ways. Even if you grew up in the church, and maybe that wasn't an active kind of rebellion, but there was a part of your heart that said, I just want to be left alone to do my own thing. That's what it is to be in the world as Jesus says. But the, the Spirit actually can come into that kind of heart and, and transform it and change it. Uh, John scholar Andreas Kostenberger points out that the Holy Spirit's conviction of the world gives hope that many who are in the world and are currently opposed to Jesus will not be a part of the world forever, but will repent of their sins and believe in Christ. So in this way, the Spirit's convicting work is good news. That we can actually be free of that kind of hardness toward God. And it's great hope for us who have been called by Jesus and have been given this mission by Jesus to go and to make disciples of the world and to tell others about him, that he is actually doing that work. We're not doing that on our own. And then specifically, the Spirit convicts the world of three things. And you, you see this is in verses 8 down to 11. So we'll start in verse 8 again. It says, and when he comes, again, this is the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And then he unpacks these three. Jesus says, concerning sin, because you do not believe in me, or they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. And then concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And so the first thing that the Spirit convicts here is this idea of convicting of sin. I think sin is one of those words that we can easily misunderstand or has um, connotations and baggage connected to it, where we think about sin primarily as breaking a rule. You might think of the Ten Commandments, and, and sin is breaking one of these rules that God is just going to put out there into the world. And, and certainly it's not less than something like that. But at the heart of sin is a rejection of a relationship. See, Sin is a rejection of a relationship before it ever is the breaking of a rule. Because the heart of sin is a rejection of God. And Jesus doesn't say here concerning sin because they've broken the rules. He says concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Now, it's true when we end up rejecting God and we don't want him in our life, we do end up violating his good design for life and all of that. But the Spirit is work convicting us that we are actually in a place of being slaves to sin. It's the, the lie that sin says is this is going to be the place where you find joy and peace and satisfaction. And to give your life to Christ is going to be something where you give up control and freedom and joy. And the Spirit is actually doing the work of convicting us that no, actually you are in bondage. You are enslaved. You are being robbed of joy. You're in a path that leads not to life, but to death. But here's the thing. The very moment that the Spirit is doing that convicting work in your life, there can be another voice, and that is the voice of the evil one. And Christians believe that there is a supernatural evil in the world. And the other voice is also there, but not bringing conviction, but rather bringing condemnation. And those two voices are often happening simultaneously in our lives. Because here's how the evil one works. The evil one is so perniciously evil that he is working to tempt you, to entice you away from Christ, to do things that, that will bring you into suffering and pain. 
And he, he tempts and he tempts to, to do this. He gives you all these lies about how there's actually going to be freedom and hope. And then the second that you give in, he is there condemning and shaming you and saying, how could you? You're a horrible person. Why, you, you call yourself a Christian and you would do this? Bringing shame. That is not the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And really the difference between those two voices really lies in the difference between guilt and shame. When the Spirit brings conviction of sin, there's this profound sense of, I've really done something wrong. And maybe I didn't even understand that I did this wrong. Now I have this insight. Well, oh my goodness, I've messed up this relationship or I've, I've sinned against God in some way. And there's this move in your heart to say, I want to go make that right. I want to seek God's forgiveness. I want to ask forgiveness from this person. And I have hope in the gospel that that Jesus came and he loves me and he forgives me. And so I can go to this other person and I can own that I I really hurt you. And will you forgive me? All that. That's the work of the spirit. But you know, you're listening to the voice of the evil one when it's the voice of shame that doesn't just say you've done something wrong, but that you are bad. Not that just that you've done something wrong, but that actually you are wrong. You're a mistake. How could anyone love you? Especially how could God love you after what you've done? That's not the voice of the Spirit's conviction, rather the evil one's voice of condemnation. So the Spirit brings about conviction of sin that leads us to hear the good news. The Spirit's conviction always is accompanied by the good news that Jesus has died to rescue you from this. So you can have the courage, and it may be really, really hard, but you can have the courage to go and own your failure and seek forgiveness. The Spirit will always speak conviction that is accompanied by the proclamation of the good news that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So he brings also then conviction about righteousness. This is the second thing. So he brings conviction about sin, but also conviction about righteousness. This is another one of those tricky ones where where Bible readers throughout the centuries have wondered, what does Jesus actually mean by conviction about righteousness? And there's been a number of ways that people have tried to understand this. I think the best way to understand this is that he convicts the world about self, their self-righteousness. So this kind of sense that that these these good things I do in order to to feel good about myself, this kind of self-righteousness, um, And Pastor Tim Keller points out that one of the things that makes the gospel so radically different from religion is that religious people repent of their wrongdoings, those acts that they say, yes, this is a violation of God's design or whatever, I, I repent of my wrongdoings. But he says gospel people not only repent of their wrongdoings, gospel people also repent of their wrong reasons for their right doings. Gospel people don't just repent for their wrongdoings, but they also repent for the wrong reasons for their right doings, meaning that there's all kinds of things where we are doing the right thing, but we may be doing it out of selfish motives. Or we may be doing it to, to gain power or to get influence or to try to, um, any, any host of reasons, right? But the gospel people get beyond just whether the action is right or wrong, but the motivation behind it. Religious people repent of their wrongdoings, but gospel people who have the conviction of the Holy Spirit about righteousness actually can begin to understand even the wrong reasons, the wrong motivations for the right things that they do. And then lastly, it says that the Spirit convicts of judgment. And I think the best way to understand this is the kind of the wrong judgment about who Jesus is. Again, this is the idea that we have been convicted judging who Jesus is. We've, had, we've been making an assessment about who he is. 
And the Spirit convicts us about the wrongness of our judgment, about who He is as the one who has come from God, the one who has made us, the very one who is God and man together as one. So this is what the convicting work of the Spirit is. And it's why it's good news, because He's our only hope that sort of our hardened, our unbelieving, our self-righteous, our, our Jesus-rejecting hearts, that's all of us. That is all where we begin. can actually change. That's incredibly good news. But then there's more good news, because when the Spirit does His convicting work, we're actually brought into God's family. We have this new identity as adopted children into this family. We're part of this people of God. And Jesus says here that it is better that He goes, because when He goes, the Helper will come and he will guide God's people. Our helper guides God's people. So the helper that Jesus sends guides God's people into all truth specifically. Look at verses 12 and 13. This is where Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. I appreciate Jesus's sensitivity to the disciples in that moment. It's like, I've been laying a lot on you guys right now. I have a lot more to tell you, but you, you're not in a place to hear it right now. Many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And this is one of those moments too when we're reading our Bibles, we have to be astute about, okay, who's Jesus speaking to directly in this moment? Because first and foremost, we always remind ourselves this, right? The Bible is written for us, but it's not written directly to us. We're not sitting there in this room with Jesus 2,000 years ago on the night before he died. So it's written for us, but he's speaking directly to his 11 apostles, his 11 disciples in that moment. Judas has already left the room earlier. We read about that a few weeks ago. He's off preparing to betray Jesus. But he's speaking directly to those 11 closest followers in this moment. And, and that's really key to remember in this moment, because specifically, sort of the guidance promised to them is that they will, even after Jesus has died, risen from the dead, and ascended, that they will have the guidance of the Spirit to know all that is true about Jesus and what it means to follow him in this new moment where he is ascended into heaven. And that's really what gives us also the foundation for trusting that the New Testament documents are not just the words of people writing down some things that they remembered about Jesus, but rather this promise that the Holy Spirit will be working through them to inspire them to write words that are from God for his people to follow. And here's the deal. Anyone can just study the Bible, though, as ancient literature. And this is where the promise of the Holy Spirit's guidance extends, not just to those original 11 hearers of Jesus, but to us as well. There are lots of people who have made a career out of studying the Bible, just like in any other ancient text, right? There are people who study Plato and Aristotle and Shakespeare, and they're just studying ancient texts. That's very different than having this book come alive to you as your hope and your life and your joy. And I, I remember the moment when that happened for me, where this became more than just ink and paper. And I was, uh, it was the summer in between my sophomore and junior of high school, and I had known a lot about Jesus. I actually knew a lot about the Bible. I grew up in church. I, I had memorized all the, the 66 books, not the content of all the 66 books, but I could say the, all the Bible books in order. I, I knew the list of the 12 uh, disciples and the 12 sons of Jacob, and I had lots of Bible information. I even probably had lots of Bible verses memorized. There was nothing wrong with that, but it didn't 
it wasn't really alive for me. I didn't even know that until that night when I just had this, this moment of being, and it was the work of the Holy Spirit that I looked back. It was absolutely what Jesus is talking about here. I was so convicted about my sin. And I remember opening my Bible to Romans chapter 8, because I remember my dad saying that was one of his favorite verses. I hadn't opened this Bible in a long time. I read Romans 8.1. It says, therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and everything changed for me. Next morning, I woke up, and I had this Bible. It was uh, this little adventure Bible that I had as a kid, and it was in this vinyl zipper Bible case thing, and I, I opened it up, and it was just alive for me in a way it never had been. I just started in Romans chapter 1, and I just kept rereading, rereading Romans. I couldn't get enough of it. I'd just go to the park and sit by myself and, and read Romans. And then I went on and I read the minor prophets of all the places to go next. And, and then I memorized Romans 8, and I memorized Romans 12, all because this book suddenly became more than just ink and paper, but it became the very words of life God to me. And that's what happens when the, the Holy Spirit begins to guide you into all truth is that the Bible becomes precious to you. Now, look, then there have also been seasons in my life, right, where uh, I've opened it and it doesn't seem to speak, and, and that's, that's normal, that's not a problem. But if you've never had that moment where the Scriptures have come alive for you, ask the Spirit, would you guide me into all truth? Would you help me to love your Word, to treasure it? And actually, this, this winter and spring, our students, some of our students, are specifically our eighth graders and ninth graders, are doing this class. And this actually happens on Sunday morning during the first service. Um, and it's called Established. And the idea is that we're just helping them uh, have this environment where they can kind of establish their faith as their own, learn some of the basic truths about Christianity and what, it, what it's all about and, and ask the hard questions and, and own that stuff for themselves. And we're using part of the tool for that class is a little thing called the New City Catechism, which is just a question and answer kind of tool for learning the basics of the Christian faith. And I love the question and answer about the Holy Spirit in the New City Catechism. So there's a question that says, how does the Holy Spirit help us? And here's the answer to that question. How does the Holy Spirit help us? The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, comforts us, guides us, gives us spiritual gifts and the desire to obey God and enables us to pray and to understand God's word. And that's a great summary of what Jesus teaches about the helper who is coming, the one that we receive because he goes away. He guides us, he leads us as we listen to his voice in the scriptures and his nudges and his guidance in daily life. But there's one more thing here about why it is better that Jesus leaves and sends us the Spirit. So what we've seen, it's better that he leaves and sends us the Spirit, the helper, because he convicts us, he guides us. And then third here, that our helper preaches Jesus to us. And this is how you know that God's Spirit is really at work. Is Jesus glorified? Is he exalted? Is he preached? Is he proclaimed? Is he treasured? Is he enjoyed? This is verse 14. And he will glorify me. For he will take what is mine, and then notice this, and declare it, proclaim it, declare it to you. All the Father, all that the Father has is mine, and therefore I said to you, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit does this work of declaring. Even a couple weeks ago, we, we looked at this idea that the Holy Spirit is like a floodlight, pointing light on Jesus. He's like a, a preacher who lives inside of us. And so if we're honest, there are so many voices that we're constantly listening to, right? That we hear in our lives. 
Voices of inadequacy, shame, rejection, despair, selfishness, entitlement, anger. There are so many sermons, right, sermons going on in our brains, and so many of them are destructive and misleading. But the Holy Spirit is also preaching a sermon to you, trying to raise his voice above the rest, but you really have to listen. And you know what? His sermon is always about Jesus. It's always about the good news of what Jesus has accomplished for you, what he wants to do in you. And so when you're afraid, the sermon is Jesus is with you. When you feel overwhelmed, it's that Jesus will help you. When you're sad, it's that Jesus sees you. When you feel alone, the sermon is that Jesus wants you and he loves you. When you're overcome with shame, it's that Jesus accepts you and forgives you no matter what. He's always preaching to you. He's always declaring to you the good news about Jesus. And the amazing thing about the Spirit is there, he may preach to you one particular sermon for a whole year or two years or three years, a truth that you need. And then the next day you'll open your Bible and you will read a passage that maybe you've read two or three or eight or a hundred times before. And all of a sudden something new will stick out to you there because it's the right time for you to hear that truth, to understand that in this fresh way. So we need a helper. We need the conviction of the Spirit, his guidance, his quiet preaching directly in our hearts. But the question is, how do we receive that? And, and, and first of all, you have to be a follower of Jesus to receive the Spirit through Jesus. So you, if you're not a follower of Jesus and you want his help, ask for it. Put your trust in him. Again, maybe earlier you heard me even telling this story of how God's Word came alive for me. You may be like, I don't, I kind of thought I was a Christian. I mean, I kind of grew up going to church and I don't know if I've ever had a moment like that, and it doesn't have to look exactly like mine, right? The Spirit works in lots of different ways. But maybe what the Spirit's nudging you this morning is you've never actually trusted Him. You've never actually trusted Jesus. Um, There's an old singer named uh, Keith Green, and he would say, you know, going to church makes you a Christian as much as going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. It's not about showing up in this building. It's about putting your faith and your hope in Jesus. So maybe the Spirit's nudging you in that way this morning to actually do that for the first time. But once you've done that, the question still remains, how do I access his help in my life? Well, there's a lot that could be said here, but for the sake of simplicity, I'm just going to suggest one thing. And I think it's something we all need a little bit more of, and that's the practice of solitude. And so, um, so if you've been around a little bit, you've, you've heard about this, but maybe if you're newer, um, just you've not seen this before, but we have this tool called the Formed.life. So it's a website, and it has a companion journal. We produce one of these that goes along with every one of our sermon series. Uh, I know a lot of you were with us on Ash Wednesday, and we entered in this season of Lent, which is just a series of kind of repentance and preparation as we look forward to Good Friday and remember Jesus' death and Easter, and remember his resurrection. Well, the whole focus of this time in the formed life is this discipline of solitude, of just learning to spend time quietly by yourself to listen. Because there's so much noise in us, <laughs> around us. Um, it's kind of like that metaphor of if you're walking uh, in, a, in a pond or through a creek and your, your boots and your feet, they kind of stir up all the silt and dust. But if you just be still for a moment and all that dust and dirt and silt and sand settle, the water becomes clear again. And that, that's really what the discipline of solitude and silence is all about, 
allowing kind of the silt and the busyness of our lives to settle so we can hear from the Spirit. And I actually want to give us some time just to practice that together here right now. Um, Because sometimes it's easy to be like, yes, I want that. I'm going to pick up that book and I'm going to do that sometime later this week. And then it gets busy and it's hard. So I actually want to give us just two or three minutes in this service right now to reflect on a few questions. I'm going to have them on the screen. Just simple questions, simple prayers of spirit. Where do you, where do I need your conviction? Where do I need guidance? Where do I need you to preach Jesus to me? And Charlotte's just going to play a little bit of instrumental music, and we're just going to spend some time sort of alone together. So we're not quite in solitude in this room full of the people, but we're going to wait quietly together and just reflect on these questions as we prepare then to come to communion and responding to the message.